Well, of course, tonight is Bible question and answer, so hopefully you have your Bible with you and you can follow along. Some passages we'll turn to, others I may just allude to because uh, we can never give all the time that is needed to uh, the number of questions that are asked, but hopefully we can at least give some information to spur your thoughts and kind of lead in the right direction. So, uh, just have your Bible ready, and we'll be turning some passages back and forth, and, and as I say, hopefully it'll be helpful in just uh, giving some thoughts on these really good questions that were turned in. First one was turned in, uh, sort of, I think, uh, I think it's joking. It says, Pastor Brian, are you going to be awake and alert for this evening's service? Uh, how was the coffee over there? Well, um, I, thank you. I've had several ask, and actually I feel great. I'm surprised because... I think that the, the Ethiopia training that we do is, um, it, it may be the most brutal of all the travel because it's just, just, there's no easy way to get there. You have to, you know, you go to Washington, D.C., that's as far as you can get, you spend the night, then you drive, I mean, then you fly like 13 and a half hours to Ethiopia to add us, and then you get there and kind of recover, and then you drive to where we're staying. And then uh, you spend the night there, and then you get up and drive to the village, which is only like 10 miles away, and it takes almost an hour because the road is so bad. And so then you're doing that back and forth, and then when you're coming back, it's the same thing in reverse, except the, the flight back from Ethiopia is even longer because you're going against the jet stream. So you can't even make it back in one, in one flight. You have to stop in Dublin, Ireland to refuel the plane, and then you, you get back and... So it's just, it, it really is a brutal trip, very worthwhile, extremely worth it, but it's uh, extremely taxing. Uh, but by God's grace, and I, I, I've had so many people saying they were praying, I, I'm surprised I got back at 9 o'clock last night, slept till about 5 this morning, which is very unusual. Those of you who've traveled internationally know that usually your first night you're up at 1, 2, because you're on a different time zone. And so, uh, but I slept till 5 and didn't take a nap this afternoon, and feel great, and it had nothing to do with the coffee they served me over there. Um, although they did do this time the same thing they did to me the first time, and that is, I, I, first time this happened, and this time, got there, the first morning, we go ready to start the class, and there's this lady there in full traditional Ethiopian garb, I mean, just decked out, and it's there to say, thank you, we want to honor you, and she made this special Ethiopian coffee uh, just for me, and those of you who know, I don't drink coffee. I can't drink coffee, and so I'm, all, I'm stuck because I don't want to be culturally offensive, and I want to be appreciative, but I, I can't get it down. And so uh, I'm, I'm whispering to Missaker, Missaker, when you finish yours, let me hand you mine. Let's swap cups so that, uh, so I don't offend anyone here. So we did that, and they saw me, and. Uh, so then he, he said, sorry, Pastor Brian doesn't drink coffee. And they were so gracious. But, oh, no problem. We'd rather him not drink it than drink it and, and not like it and all that. So anyway, I start by sticking my foot in my mouth before we even get started because I can't drink their coffee. And yet they were trying to be so honoring and appreciative. You just feel like a heel. But I could drink it, I guess, and throw up. I don't know which would be, would be more culturally offensive, but... Um, Anyway, so thanks for your prayers. I know many did pray, and uh, it was extremely, uh, extremely uh, rich time. So 
Uh, we're going to start with this first question, and uh, the reason I start with it first is because I don't, I don't know an answer to it, so it's maybe a good place to start. It says, why was it so important that a Passover lamb and then Jesus have no broken bones? Uh, was this just part of being a spotless, perfect sacrifice, or does it uh, help prove Jesus was in control of his own death, that he gave up his spirit and his timing? Or does it show that Jesus had no sin in his life for which he needed to be disciplined by the good shepherd? The illusion there is that we do know that shepherds, a good shepherd would break the, the bones of a sheep that continually wandered. So is it somehow saying that? All of those are certainly plausible or possible, but uh, because Scripture doesn't tell us, and it doesn't tell us, um, we don't really know. Uh, I went back this afternoon and looked at the Passover regulations in Exodus, and then they're reaffirmed in Numbers. And then I went to John 19, where either both or one of those is alluded to, where it says no bone of Jesus was broken that might fulfill the Scripture, and it alludes back to both Exodus and Numbers. But we're not told in Exodus or in Numbers why a bone can't be broken, and I uh, like I say, I probably consulted a half a different sources this afternoon, either on Exodus, Numbers, or John, and none of them really have an answer as to why a Passover lamb could not have a bone broken. Uh, but we know why Jesus couldn't, because he was the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of it. So we know why he couldn't, but why the Passover lamb itself couldn't. Um, you know, and I think if I had to guess your second or your first suggestion, no, your second one there about uh, maybe being part of being spotless, perfect. There was no flaw in him externally or even internally, no broken bones. But of course, that kind of breaks down when you realize all that he went through physically and how marred he was. So, no, I don't know the answer, and I, I don't know anyone that can give it other than guessing, conjecture, because. I couldn't find any place in Scripture that would answer the question of why the Passover lamb could not have a bone broken in the process. All right, back to Genesis 42 for the next question, all the way back to Genesis 42. This is in the middle of the Joseph narrative, uh, which runs from Genesis 37 to 50. You probably are familiar with the story. Joseph is sold into slavery and, of course, eventually ends up being second in command in Egypt. And then he, uh, he has his brothers come to them, and through a series of events, he eventually reveals himself to them, etc. So the question is based on 42.24. It says, and, Jesus, uh, and Joseph, he turned himself away from them and wept. And this is when he's wanting to reveal himself to them, but doesn't, he knows it's not the right time to do that yet. Uh, and then it goes on to say, Then he returned to them again and talked to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. The question is this, how or why did Joseph choose Simeon to remain in Egypt while the other brothers returned to Canaan for Benjamin? Now, again, I'm assuming you're somewhat familiar with the story. Joseph keeps him because he says, You have to go back and get this younger brother. You're not going to see my face unless you do. I'm not going to give you any more support supplies, etc. And the key to understand what is going on there is Joseph is, is purposely making things difficult for the brothers to see if they've repented. He wants to be restored to them. He's not being mean, as some people assume by the, the, the things he does. He longs. That's why he wept. He longs to be restored to them, but knows that there can really be no restoration if their hearts haven't changed for what they had done. So he's keeping one back basically to see if they will do to him what they did 
to, to Simeon what they did to him. That is, they, you know, for their own benefit, sacrificed Joseph, sold him uh, for a few pieces of silver, lied to their father. He was torn by a ravenous beast. I mean, just think of how self-centered they were. They didn't care about Joseph. They didn't care about their father. Just the, the, the agony, uh, the torture that they inflicted. So he's basically saying, I'm going to see if they'll do that again. If they'll go back and lie to, their, to our father and say something about Simeon, uh, or if they will, will uh, step up to the plate and do the right thing. Now, why it was Simeon, again, we're not told. Specifically, uh, one possibility is that Simeon was the oldest brother who participated in the act against Joseph. So it, that may be a clue as to why he chose Simeon, uh, being the oldest uh, who, who participated, because not all the brothers participated fully or in the same way. Um, or another possibility is that maybe uh, Joseph knew the dynamics and that Simeon was the one that they would most likely sacrifice for themselves. So it's like, okay, we'll see if they'll do that. Just as they did that to Joseph, then we'll see if uh, they'll do that uh, to Simeon. So again, we're not told exactly uh, why he chose Simeon. We have some pretty good guesses but we do know why he was doing what he was doing, and that is to bring out their hearts on the table to see if they had repented for what they had done to their father and to him, etc. All right, next question. This comes from a little, little girl, and we always have at least one or two questions from little ones. And her question is, how did the Easter Bunny get involved with Jesus' death? Uh, it's a great question. It is. Uh, there are actually a couple explanations or possible sources Uh, One is, in ancient Egypt, the rabbit was the symbol of birth for obvious reasons. They have, you know, there's so many uh, baby rabbits. Um, Other ancient people consider rabbits to be the symbol of the moon. So rabbits were connected with the spring when things came alive and they were the symbol of the moon. Uh, And those were actually a part of this, not Easter, the, 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 the resurrection, but the the, the holiday that sort of Easter got melded with, uh, that was way before Christianity, Christianity ever came on the scene. So if you go back in ancient, that's how the connection became there in ancient times. But there is a more modern story that may uh, have led to the tradition of, of uh, the Easter Bunny here in our culture. It's a modern story of a poor woman in Germany who lived during a time of famine And the story says that she managed to get some eggs for her hungry children. And to make it special, she hid the eggs on Easter. And as the children discovered them in a bush, a rabbit jumped out. And so the legend began that the rabbit brought the eggs to feed the hungry children. And most people believe, if you try to track it down, that's where the Easter bunny was born. So probably either from that source or maybe a combination of that and some of those ancient sources coming or or going all the way back to Egypt. All right, next question is this. It says, uh, should Christians strive to obey the Ten Commandments? This is, of course, coming off of Galatians this morning and what we've been seeing thus far in the letter. Uh, The answer to that question is no and yes. Now, how do you like that answer? I mean, this is the political season, so it fits perfectly, right? (laughs) No and yes. So just whichever fits. Um, actually, it is both no and yes, and let me explain uh, how. Uh, should Christians strive to obey the Ten Commandments? The answer to that is no in this sense, 
that we are not under the law. We're not under any of the law. The law was a unit. Galatians will make that clear. James 2 makes that clear. You can't, what a lot of Christians want to do is divide up in the, the law into what parts they think need to obey, be obeyed. And so they pick and choose. Well, you know, don't commit adultery. That's obviously one you have to obey. But, you know, don't wear a, a garment with two types of clothing. You don't have to obey that one. Well, what gives us the right to divide up the law? You, you can't find anything in the Bible that says the law can be divided into ceremonial, civil, moral. Listen, if God says something, it's moral, right? All the law was moral. You can't say part of it was moral, part of it wasn't moral. It's all moral. I mean, just to be silly about it, if God says don't wear purple and you wear purple, that's a moral issue. So everything, all the law was moral. So that is too arbitrary. So the law is a unit. You can't pick and choose. So in that sense, we're not under the law. So the answer to the question, should Christians strive to obey the Ten Commandments? No, we're not under the law, period. Any of it. Any of the 613 commandments. Now here's the yes side of the, uh, the answer. Should Christians strive to obey the Ten Commandments? Yes, in this sense, that nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the New Covenant. Nine of the ten are repeated in the New Testament. The only one that's not repeated is the Sabbath command. Uh, in fact, it's not only repeated, it is clearly repealed in Galatians, in Colossians, in Romans 14. Uh, so uh, in that sense, then the answer to the question is yes, we should strive to obey the Ten Commandments, but not because they were a part of the law, Old Testament law, but because they have been reiterated in the New Testament or the New Covenant. Uh, let me give an illustration. This is one I always use to try to, to make this clear. This is a, an educational city, right? We have Montana State University here, Montana Bible College, so we understand how education works. So let me use an educational illustration. You go to class, first day of class, your teacher gives you a syllabus. He says, this is what is required of you. Whatever the seven assignments. So how many assignments are you responsible for? Seven, because that's what's on the syllabus. But halfway through the class, halfway through the semester, the teacher comes to class one day and says, hold it, I've revised the syllabus. Here's the new syllabus. Now, when you get the new syllabus, how much of the old syllabus are you under? There are two correct answers to that. One correct answer is none of it. You've got a new syllabus. This is what you're required to follow. The, the, the other answer is how much of the, new, of the old syllabus are you under? whatever is repeated in the new syllabus. And obviously, there would be assignments repeated in the new syllabus. There would be some changes, but there would be assignments repeated. That's exactly the way it works, beloved. God gave an old covenant, 613 commandments, to the people of Israel called the Law of Moses. They were responsible for all 613 commandments. Jesus, on the night before his death, said, I'm inaugurating the new covenant, so what of the old covenant are we under? Zero. What of the, under the, old, covenant, what of the old covenant are we under? Whatever is repeated in the New Covenant. And nine of the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery, honor your father and your mother, All of the, nine of the ten are repeated in the New Covenant. The one that is not is the Sabbath command. So Saturday is not a non-issue for us under the New Covenant. If you want to work on Saturday, you can work on Saturday. You're not violating anything. And Sunday never was and never has been and never will be the Sabbath. It's always been Saturday. So in answer to your question, should Christians strive to obey the Ten Commandments? No. Yes. No in the sense of not as 
part of the law? Yes, because nine of the ten are repeated in the New Covenant. All right, similar question says this. uh, When the Lord instituted Passover in Exodus 12, uh, He commanded that no foreigner should eat it unless he was circumcised. How should this apply to modern believers who wish to participate in a Passover celebration in a way that is honoring God, but knowing circumcision is not required of believers in Christ? Well, I do think the, the, way, the way or how this can be relevant is that if you're going to celebrate the Passover, and I know many of you in here have done that. I've, my wife and I have done that for years. Uh, not only that, I've led several. I'm leading one for a ladies' group a week from tomorrow night. Uh, I, I do one for Heritage Christian every year uh, and often uh, in groups here in our church in the youth ministry. Pastor John has had me do that a few times and et cetera. So I know a lot of you have done that. Uh, it, it, it does really help to make the Passover celebration meaningful. If we do go back and understand what it was, why it was celebrated, what were the uh, specific stipulations, etc. Well, in this case, there was the command that no foreigner should eat it unless he was circumcised because the Passover was celebrating the deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt, God's deliverance of his people. So no foreigner should participate in that unless that foreigner had become a proselyte, that is, a convert to Judaism. In other words, you, have no, you, you can't celebrate. It's sort of like, can people celebrate Can unbelievers celebrate communion today? No, that doesn't mean anything to them. What we're celebrating is the death of Jesus for our sins and our salvation. So in that, go back to the Old Testament, no foreigner should eat the Passover unless he was circumcised because being circumcised was his indication that he was turning to the God of Israel and embracing the God of Israel and saying, God is among you, the people of Israel, and I am basically converting to Judaism. I am a proselyte, and so then a foreigner could do that. So in that sense, if you understand the reason for it, then how we, how we apply it to modern believers today is that we realize that the Passover, in fact, the reason Bev and I started celebrating Passover is not even so much because of what God did for the people of Israel, but because of what Jesus did on the night before his death. We, we actually started celebrating Passover simply because uh, the final week leading up to Good Friday and Easter, we would review every day what Jesus did on that day. And, and then when we came to Thursday, Passover, we were sort of stuck. We thought, oh, he celebrated Passover. What's that? What did that mean? Why did he do that? So that's what prompted us to dig in and start celebrating Passover every year because we wanted to know what our Lord did on the final night before his death. And then we wanted to participate in that and, and do the same thing. So uh, in one sense, you could say that how should this, does this apply to modern believers? Well, it doesn't because we're not under the old covenant. We're not commanded to keep the Passover. And if you do keep it, you're not commanded to keep it exactly the way the people of Israel kept it. Because again, the old covenant has been fulfilled. But on the other side of the coin is if you understand what was done, why it was done, why the restrictions, why the stipulations, then it gives it a lot more meaning once you do participate in it. All right, next question says this. Uh, I know that Satan cannot indwell believers, and I know the depravity of our hearts. 
but do you think Satan and his demons can talk to us by whispering in our ears or something like that to try to get us to sin? And the answer to your question is absolutely yes. In other words, what I hear you saying is, I know the depravity of our hearts, and so our hearts lead us to sin, but is that, is the, is that the only source of our sin? And the answer is no. The New Testament is clear that there are three sources of temptation for us as believers. One source is our own fallenness, call it what you want, uh, depravity, uh, sin nature, sinful disposition. Christians use a lot of different terms. But there's still something within us, even as redeemed people, that prompts us to sin. Uh, That is why if the devil were to disappear, we would still choose to sin at times. So it's not, you know, the old Flip Wilson statement, the devil made me do it. That isn't true all the time. Many times we just choose because of our own sinfulness. So that's one source of temptation for the believer, according to the New Testament. A second is what the the New Testament calls the world. Not the created world, that is creation, but this world system. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let this world squeeze you into its mold. This world system is a source of temptation for us to buy into the philosophies of the world, the beliefs of the world, the priorities of the world. So that's a source of temptation. And a third one that the New Testament talks about repeatedly is Satan and his demons. 1 Peter 5 says, be vigilant, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and he's using terms he uses elsewhere to clearly refer to demons. So in answer to your question, uh, can Satan and his demons talk to us by whispering in our ears or something? So you're right. It may not be that they're sitting on our shoulder as it's often depicted whispering in our ears, but clearly Satan and his demons can tempt us. They can uh, prompt us to sin, put thoughts in our minds to run with, etc. So the answer to your question is absolutely yes, which is why James says, uh, draw near to God, James 4, he'll draw near to you, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The clear implication of that is, yes, that Satan, the devil, does prompt us, tempt us to sin. All right, next question says this. um, Pastor Brian, who was responsible for determining which writings were the authentic, inspired books of the Bible, as opposed to various other writings that other religions include, such as Catholicism? How did they reach their conclusions? How do we know their conclusions were correct? And when did this take place? Well, your questions are really good ones, very important ones, but uh, unfortunately they are such that it would, you know, you could take an entire semester class in Bible college or seminary on the canon of Scripture. That's the technical term for this, the questions that you're asking is the canon or the topic of canonicity. How do we know what books belong in the Bible? How did they get there? Why were others excluded, etc.? Now, I'll give some brief answers, but these are extremely brief and don't by any means do justice to the topic. So let me give you a book. Uh, if you, whoever asked this question, you didn't sign your name. But there are a lot of good books on this. I remember when I read years ago in Bible college, From God to Us uh, by Geisler and Nix. It's still a classic, a great book. Uh, the Journey from Texts to Translations. It's a Moody Press book. I forget. The author is another really good one. Maybe the best one is a very recent one by Michael Kruger, spelled with, uh, spelled with a K, K-R-U-G-E-R, titled Canon Revisited, Michael Kruger. 
Um, and if, so if you really want a full answer to your questions, then consult one of those books, especially uh, Kruger's book. So who was responsible for determining which writings were the authentic inspired books of the Bible as opposed to the other ones? And now this is going to sound like a cliche, but I'm going to say it this way. The Holy Spirit was responsible. And why do I say that? I'm not denying that people were involved in the you know, uh, pulling together Scripture. But ultimately, why a book is in the Bible is it's inspired. That's the starting point. It's, it's because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, I mentioned to you that I taught this last week, the book of 1 Corinthians in Ethiopia. Uh, one of the things that we talked about is that there are actually, at least there were actually four letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We have two of them, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, which are actually 2nd and 4th Corinthians. And what I mean is Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians. We know that. He refers to it in 1st Corinthians 5, and we don't have that letter. It's lost. Why don't we have it? It wasn't inspired and preserved by the Holy Spirit of God. But I'm sure it was a good letter. But Paul wrote that. Then he wrote what we call 1st Corinthians, which is actually 2nd Corinthians. It was inspired. It was inspired and preserved we have it in Scripture. Then he wrote another letter to them that would have been 3 Corinthians. We don't have it. I'm sure it was a good letter, but not inspired, not preserved by the Spirit of God. Then he wrote 4 Corinthians, which we call 2 Corinthians. So how did 1 and 2 Corinthians get in the Bible when it was actually 2 and 4 Corinthians? Because those were the letters inspired by the Spirit of God and preserved by the Spirit of God. So ultimately, that's what it comes down to. So when it came to putting the canon of Scripture together, basically those that were involved said, what books bear the marks of inspiration? Were they written by an apostle? Now, by the way, when it comes to canonicity, the New Testament is more, what do I say, complicated or more of an issue than the Old Testament. The Old Testament canon was uh, in place by the time Jesus and the apostles were here. And it's clear by a statement Jesus made in Matthew 23 that the Old Testament canon that the Jews used was the right canon, which is a significant point because if the apocryphal books belong in the Bible, and they don't, but if they did belong in the Bible, they would be a part of the Old Testament canon. But the fact that Jesus acknowledged the canon used by the Jews, which we would say Genesis to Malachi, but in their Bibles they're in different orders, so it would be Genesis to Second Chronicles, Jesus was basically affirming the Old Testament canon. So there's no doubt about those 39 books, and that should erase any doubt about the apocryphal books. Because, again, I say, if the apocryphal books belonged in the Bible, they would be a part of the Old Testament canon. They were never a part of the Jewish canon, and Jesus affirmed the Jewish canon, and the apostles affirmed the Jewish canon. So the, the question is more about the 27 books in the New Testament. So when it came to determining those, the, the tests of inspiration and authority, was it written by an apostle, a close associate of an apostle? Does it bear the marks of inspiration? Is it universally received by believers who have the Spirit of God indwelt in them, who recognize it as authoritative Scripture, etc.? So that was the way uh, it, it unfolded. and how, That's how they reached their conclusions. Um, and then um, the, the official statement, if you will, took place in approximately 300, A.D. 300. Now, some of you hear that and say, wow, you mean the canon was open for almost 300 years? No, it was not. Because if you study church history during that 300 years, the only reason it appears that the canon was open is because the church never wanted to make a definitive statement too soon. 
But the books that the church used during that 300-year period, the books they used were the 27 books that are in our New Testament. And so the canon was basically already closed by the end of the first century because the church used those 27 books. That's all they used. And here's an interesting factor. No, no, for the last 2,000 years, no Orthodox Protestant group has ever tried to insert any other books into the New Testament canon. There's been no attempt by Orthodox Protestantism to insert any other books into the canon. Uh, so, Though that we, have, we have complete confidence those 27 books are the 27 that belong in the New Testament. Uh, it was officially sort of ratified in around the approximate number of 300 A.D., uh, but that's sort of the process. And again, I say, that doesn't even come close to doing justice to it. Uh, so if you, if you want to really have an understanding of it, then get Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger or From God to Us by Geisler and Nix or the, te- the Journey from Texts to Translations, uh, Moody Press, I don't remember the author. Those are some of the ones that stand out in my mind as being most helpful. All right, next question is uh, John chapter 5. Uh, John chapter 5. And uh, I know that Joe preached on this text uh, a few months back. Uh, and so the question here is related to this text in John 5 about the man that Jesus healed uh, by the, the pools. And uh, in chapter 5, verse 14, I believe is where the question is. Um, yeah, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the question is, what does our Savior mean when he says, See, you have been made well, sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you? Does this mean sickness and disease is tied to our lack of seeking repentance for sin? Uh, a number of commentators take it that way, and that's certainly a possibility in the sense that in 1 Corinthians, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, tells the Corinthians, you know what, because you are coming to the Lord's table in such a disrespectful manner, in such an unworthy manner, for this reason there are some who among you are sick and some, of you, some even sleep. So God was chastening the believers with sickness and even some to the point of death. So certainly that's a possibility uh, of what Jesus was saying. But I think your second, you, you list two or three possibilities. I think your second is, is really more central to what Jesus was saying because you say, or is this meaning living in sin without repentance eventually leads to hell and eternity away or apart from God. And I do think that is the primary focus of what Jesus was saying. Listen, you had a horrendous life. I mean, this man had been infirm for 38 years. I mean, try to imagine that. 38 years. And Jesus healed him. And Jesus here, I think, when he meets him in the temple, is basically calling him to repentance. Saying that what you had was awful. It was awful and I've given you life, as it were, as an illustration of what you need, and that is your greater need, your greatest need, and it's always our greatest need, is eternal life. So don't continue in sin, because if you do, unless you repent, a worse thing will come upon you. And what is worse than being an invalid for 38 years? That's going to hell. It's far worse. 
So I do believe that's what Jesus was getting at. I think he was doing the same thing he often did when he so graciously healed someone. He, he wanted to meet the physical need and he showed his compassion, but always greater than that was the spiritual need because, uh, because the physical, as important as it is, pales in comparison to the eternal. So I think that's exactly where Jesus was going with that. All right, next question says this. Where was Christ after his death and during his death, what does Scripture say about where Jesus was during those three days? I believe Scripture is very clear where Jesus was because Jesus, his final statement on the cross was what? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he said, Father, I'm coming to you. So that's where he went. Jesus went to the Father. However, what you may be asking, I'm guessing, uh, what you may be asking about is, I think Scripture also tells us in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, in that context, that when Jesus left the Father to go back into His body for resurrection, on the way, He went and proclaimed, made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, spirits that Peter connects back to Genesis 6. The, the sons of God and the daughters of men, when the sons of God took on human form, took human uh, wives, tried to destroy the messianic line, etc., and they were confined to prison, and they tried to prevent the Messiah from coming. So I think what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3 is that on his way back into his body for resurrection, Jesus went and made a proclamation of victory to the spirits in prison. What Jesus did not do what Jesus did not do between his death and his resurrection is, and these two are very popular but very erroneous, number one, Jesus did not go to hell. He did not go to hell, and yet so many Christians believe that. He went to the Father, but there are so many who believe he went to hell, and they say, well, he had to go to hell to pay for our sins. Well, then what did he mean by his second to the last statement on the cross? It is finished. If it was finished, why did he go to hell? He didn't go to hell because he paid the price fully on the cross as he drank in full the cup of God's wrath. So he didn't go to hell. Second thing he didn't do, and this is again an erroneous idea, he didn't go and preach to people to give them a second chance. He did make a proclamation. It wasn't to people. It was to spirits. And it wasn't to give them a chance of salvation. It was to proclaim his victory over them and to show that they were not successful in preventing him from coming, dying, etc. So Jesus went to the Father, on his, and then three days later, on his way back into his body, he went and made a proclamation of victory to the spirits in prison. Uh, last question says this. This morning... You stress that we are not sanctified by the Old Testament law. Are we sanctified by the New Testament law? And by the New Testament law, I mean the commands of Christ and all the imperatives of the New Testament. Does sanctification by faith only mean that we are not required to put forth effort in our sanctification? Excellent question. So I would say this. Sanctification in the New Testament is never presented as passive it's never presented as passive, that you just do nothing. So, no, I would not want to communicate that idea that, that it means that we put forth no effort. But what it does mean is this, that the effort we put forth stems from relationship. That's the key. 
It stems from relationship. What is our motivation for obeying the commands of the New Testament? What is our strength for obeying the commands of the New Testament? What is our incentive? And the answer to all those questions is our relationship with Christ. So we don't just trade Old Testament law for New Testament law, like, well, you crank out the Old Testament laws, now you crank out the New Testament laws. No, it begins with a relationship with our Savior that compels us, that motivates us, that, uh, that, uh, that really gives us the, the source. That's why in John 15, Jesus said, Abide in me, because apart from me you can do nothing. So he was saying there, listen, if you don't keep this relationship strong and vibrant, you will not be able to do anything. But if we do abide in Christ, then in answer to your question, are we sanctified by the commands of the New Testament? Then the answer is yes, because many of the commands of the New Testament are Romans 6. Don't present the instruments of your body as instruments of sin, but present them to God as instruments of righteousness. That is a sanctification passage. Philippians 2, Paul says, work out your own salvation. He doesn't say work for it. Philippians 2, work out your own salvation for it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So there's the thought again. Work it out. You're not passive. You need to work it out. You need to obey. You need to uh, put forth effort in your sanctification. But all the while recognizing that the reason you're even motivated to do that and the, the only reason you have the strength to do that is because of the one who works in you. So it goes back to your relationship with Christ. So, in answer to your question, are we sanctified by the New Testament imperatives, commands? Yes, we are. Sanctification by faith only, does it mean we are uh, required to put forth no effort? No, it doesn't mean that at all. We put forth effort, but it's not in self. It's not in our own strength. It, the effort that we put forth should flow from our relationship to Christ. So we abide in Christ, cultivate that relationship, and out of that relationship, by God's grace, by God's strength, then we say yes to the imperatives in the New Testament. And that is the New Testament outline or path for spiritual growth and sanctification. So great questions. Thank thank you to all of of you who turned those in, and uh, we, we got through them. So let's stand and close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together, not only this evening, but this morning, our time with your people. It is really such a a source of uh, encouragement just to interact and practice the one another's and to encourage one another and to affirm prayer for one another and to try to build up one another. And thank you for the opportunities you give us, the opportunities also to uh, for our worship to revolve around you instructing us from your word and giving us greater insight and clarity on uh, the path that you've outlined for us. Uh, thank you for a great Lord's Day. Thank you for uh, the fact that the Lord Jesus has paid in full. It is finished so that we don't have to try to do anything to earn or merit salvation or acceptance Uh, by you or acceptance before you because our acceptance is found in Christ. We are accepted, Ephesians 1 says, fully accepted in the beloved one, Jesus Christ. Give us the the, the clarity to grasp that and the implications of that, what that means so that we abide in Christ and we really acknowledge practically, not just theoretically, that a 
apart from Him we can do nothing. And may all that we do flow out of a vibrant, healthy, strong relationship with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.